Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis chapter 38, verses 11 through 19, and verses 24 to 30. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went to, up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shela had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I will send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so this week, as I was preparing, uh, I texted my wife, Of all the weeks when we decided to not have kids ministry, uh, and we welcomed the children to come uh, join us, we landed on this story. Uh, good. Oh, this week has been interesting uh, as I've processed how, all right, how do you handle this story in a kind of PG Disney kind of way? Uh, we're going to see how that goes. Uh, if you've been with us, we've been, of course, going through the book of Genesis, uh, and we're nearing the end of our series uh, that we've been calling In the Beginning. And here's one of the things that becomes very striking as you begin to read through uh, narratives in the Bible, particularly the narrative of Genesis. Something becomes abundantly clear. The notion of redemption or the idea of someone being taken from a place of, of deep failure and brought to a place of, of right standing 
uh, can actually be extraordinarily scandalous, that idea. All right? We think we love a story of redemption. You know, that whole idea of someone who once fell being brought back to uh, restoration, a place of restoration. But depending on the depths to which one falls, being in right standing could actually be quite appalling to us, quite scandalous. In fact, redemption, even at times, can seem incredibly unjust. And I don't know, you know, when I think about the various stories of the Bible, there are only a few that immediately come to mind is extraordinarily scandalous in this way. And this story of Judah is one of those stories. However, amidst all the, the scandal that we inevitably are reading about here, a scandal that I think for many of us would make our skin crawl, uh, there is much that we need to know about how God redeems and how he makes right the wrongs that we so often perpetuate. So to take a look at what I mean by all of that, I want to consider several things. First would be this. I want to take a look at the scandal of redemption. Then I want to take a look at the power for redemption. And then finally, we'll see the grace in redemption. Uh, And so to do so, I need to spend a little bit more time looking at the actual story that we see laid out here, uh, because it really highlights how desperately uh, we are all in need of redemption. And like I said, of all weeks, for this to be the story that we land on, I'm going to do my best. Um, The Bible just keeps things too real sometimes, so we'll see how this goes. So first, the scandal of redemption. Uh, To begin, um, lest we, I don't know, miss the full story of Judah, there's a lot of context to Judah and his his, uh, narrative. Uh, So we need to have a little bit of a backdrop in seeing who Judah has been and how that kind of sets a trajectory for his life. Uh, Judah was one of Joseph's uh, older brothers, Um, and he was actually the older brother. If you go back to chapter 37, he's the older brother that made the suggestion that they sell Joseph uh, into slavery. Uh, Now, granted, he did this because he didn't want to kill Joseph, and so his compassionate alternative uh, was to sell his brother into enslavement. Uh, Interestingly, uh, at that time, if you go back and read that story, Judah he seems to be taking on a bit of a leadership role amongst his brothers, and that would have been interesting because Judah was actually the fourth born amongst all of his brothers, and so he wouldn't have been an obvious choice to be the leader uh, of the family, nor would he be the obvious choice to carry on the family line uh, of blessing. We, we, skipped, this, we skipped over this story. Um, <laughs> ironically, the stories, there's a couple of stories that we've skipped, not for any other reason than they just didn't help the overall Uh, arc of our series, but some really hard stories to work through. And one of the ones that we ended up skipping, uh, you can go back and read it in chapter 34. What you see is uh, uh, Judah's older brothers, uh, they relinquished their rights to the blessing uh, by grievously sinning against God because they were murderously violent men. Again, you can read that back in chapter 34. Uh, This family is so messed up that Judah is actually the level-headed one amongst all of his other brothers. The one who sold his baby brother is actually the compassionate, level-headed one. That shows just how deeply flawed and problematic this family has become. However, unfortunately, things get far worse. 
<laughs> the Genesis narrative continues uh, for many chapters. Of course, if you know the rest of the, the book, it, chronicle, it chronicles the, the experiences of, of Joseph, Joseph <laughs> in Egypt. Uh, but there's uh, this seemingly random story just kind of plopped into Joseph's story. So there's this whole long narrative of Joseph, and then randomly, seemingly randomly, you have this story of Judah just plopped right in. The story that we just heard in chapter 38, it does divert from the story of Joseph to briefly highlight Judah and his further descent into depravity. Judah, uh, just to recap a little bit of the story that uh, we, have, we didn't get a chance to read because it would have just been too long, but Judah, against the advice of his father Jacob, uh, his grandfather Isaac, and his great-great-grandfather Abraham, he marries a Canaanite woman named Shua. However, um, just beyond marry, uh, the issue of marrying uh, a Canaanite, which was already an issue uh, for uh, you know, God's people at the time because they were concerned about corruption, which is ironic given how corrupt these men are. But aside from just marrying a Canaanite w- woman, there's also this uh, extraordinary uh, impropriety uh, of Judah shown in chapter 38, verse 2, where it says that essentially he was, the language there is showing us that he was so full of lust for this woman, that he just took her, and he consummated a relationship with her, right? This was not some romantic scene of wooing a future bride. This was domination, and everything about that story is incredibly problematic. I mean, what we're seeing here is Judah, in his marriage to, uh, to Shua, we see that he is, of course, sinning against God. He is sinning against her, plus Again, the marriage would have been forbidden uh, because of the likelihood that these pagan paganites were going to corrupt them, um, which again is so ironic given how depraved and corrupt this family already is. But Judah, the future head of the family, didn't care. He was more driven by his desires than any form of righteousness. Now, subsequently, as a result of this relationship, this marriage, he would have three sons, Uh, two of which had become so wicked. Uh, The oldest son was named Ur. Uh, He took a wife named uh, Tamar. However, Ur was so wicked that God just strikes him dead. Uh, We don't know exactly what happened, but considering what we've seen already all throughout this Genesis narrative, we have to assume he was a truly, truly wicked man. God strikes him dead. Now, as was the, the custom of the day, Uh, Because Tamar was now a widow and without an heir, uh, the closest male relative, in this case it would have been uh, heir's brother Onan, was to marry his brother's widow and through that relationship provide Tamar not only the security of, of being married and having a husband, but also provide her with an heir. Interestingly, though, um, As a result of taking on this kind of relationship, Onan would not actually allow, he would not be allowed to give his name to this child that would be born. Instead, it would be his brother's name that would be given to the child because it was a way of furthering his brother's line, not his own personal line. And then, of course, it would also give, uh, as I said, uh, Tamar a bit of security for her future because, as is well known, a widow without children in this time is almost certainly destined for destitution. Yet, in his selfishness, Onan wanted his name to carry on, did not want to worry about his brother, and he had no concern for Tamar. And so, though he does marry her, he refuses to provide her a child. 
This would eventually, uh, as a result, leave him dead. And Tamar, again, widowed. I'm fast-forwarding through a lot, and I'm not saying a lot because there's a lot of details here. But at this point in the story, Judah intervenes by promising Tamar that when uh, his third son is of age, right? So this this third son was too young to marry, but when he became of age, then uh, she shall be given to him in marriage. Uh, Until that time, she is instructed to go back to her father's house and live with her father uh, until that time comes. And that's where uh, the story that we just heard read picks up. However, what we find out is that Judah really had no intention of giving Tamar to his son. And he was basically just trying to get rid of her, right? She has been, at this point, passed to various sons. He's not that interested in continuing to take care of her. And so he's just trying to get her out of his hair. Tamar knows this, and so as a result, becomes desperate. And she ends up devising a plan. She learns that Judah's wife has died. And so because she, she, she's heard that, she also hears that he's heading into town. And so with that knowledge, Tamar goes into town and desires, um, goes into town and dresses in a way that seeks to entice Judah, we'll say. Uh, again, to keep it PG, that enticement would include a monetary transaction to satisfy the sinful desires of Judah. Okay, put all that into context for yourself. This ploy entices Judah uh, because much like his wife, we saw this with his wife, he was so full of lust, he just acted on it. Consequentially to the story, which he doesn't realize that this woman that's before him is his daughter-in-law, Tamar, all of this, though, was part of her plan. She very much intended to deceive him. And in verses 16 and 17, what we see is the transaction take place where Judah offers Tamar a goat as payment. In response, Tamar says that she wants something that will guarantee that she will actually at some point receive that payment. And so Judah uh, incredibly agrees to give Tamar his signet, his cord, and his staff. Now, this is incredible because these were the main means of identification for someone. Uh, It's basically like him giving Tamar his driver's license and social security card to promise that he would return with this goat. We fast forward a bit. Tamar becomes pregnant. Judah finds out his daughter-in-law, who, uh, you know, fast forward again, finds out that his daughter-in-law, who is not married, has become pregnant. And this enrages him, and he wants her killed. Now, I spend the time to kind of recap that story because it's important for us to see this is Judah. This is who this man is. You and I, we, we cannot see the description of this man and not think anything except that him and, of course, his entire family, for that matter, they're despicable people. Right? It's hard to even listen to the story of who these people are. I mean, think back to all the things that we know about Judah so far. He's the one who concocts a plan to sell his little brother. He's the one who marries, uh, and marries a pagan woman and ends up raising two sons that become so wicked that God strikes them dead. And then he sins terribly against Tamar by refusing to take care of her, sending her off, thus leaving her uh, to a life of destitution. And then he's so full of lust that he's willing to exploit this woman, who he doesn't know who she is, 
and is willing to give her a very high, a goat would have been a very high price, would have uh, been willing to pay a lot and give everything that identifies him as Judah, willing to give all of that up for personal gratification. This is Judah, a despicable man. Now something before we get to anything else, I want to just take a minute and also say, we've said this a lot over the course of this series, I recognize that there's a lot of cultural difference in distance between where we are today and these stories, right? So when we look at these stories, of course, we rightly look at them as super archaic, all kinds of problematic things here. We don't have context for understanding things like arranged marriages often, um, although for some of you that maybe come from other cultures you would have context for it, but for a lot of people in the West, we don't have context for that. Um, widows in destitution because of their lack of children, again, it's not something that we often have a whole lot of context for, but though we can look at these stories with all this kind of uh, cultural judgment and uh, with our distance, it is also the case, though, that today we do have context for things like men using their strength to exploit and to dominate and to subjugate women. We've got context for that. We do have context for broken families that end up in cycles uh, of hurt and destruction that lasts for generations. We have context for that. You know, we have context for sinful people inflicting harm on other people. Uh, we've got context for that, right? We, we might have all this cultural distance to some of these uh, cultural expressions of brokenness that we're reading here, but the depravity of this story, I think it resonates more than we uh, want to admit it, it does in our modern-day cultures as well. And I start by noting how I started by noting how scandalous an idea of redemption can be because in order for us to understand redemption, we very much need to understand what it is to live in a place of deep depravity. And whether we want to admit it or not, we live right now in our own time in a time of great depravity. Sure, it always looks different, but there are all kinds of sinful, evil, broken things happening every single day. And so the question then becomes, what is it exactly that's going to bring us from this, from this place of brokenness, this, this place of um, deep depravity to a place of redemption? Well, we see that in the story, and that brings us to the second point, which is that we need to see the power of redemption. Uh, if we, uh, again, if, you, if we look at how this story ends, we actually see a very interesting shift in the plot. Uh, in verse 25, what we see is we see Judah, he requests Tamar be brought uh, out and, uh, so that she could be killed for her quote-unquote crimes, which is so ironic and interesting, considering all the hypocrisy. I mean, what great hypocrisy we're seeing here in Judah. Yet as she's brought out, she sends word to her father-in-law. And this is what verse uh, 25 says. Let me read this for you. As she was brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Whew. This is the gotcha moment for her. Right? In her shrewdness, Ju uh, Tamar puts Judah on blast and says, look, I've got your ID. This is you. Now, considering what we've known about Judah so far, and considering what Tamar is suggesting here, 
As I read this story, I expect a particular kind of reaction from, from Judah. And for me, as I'm reading this story, I would expect Judah to immediately get defensive, right? And he would say something along the lines of, where did you get those things? Have you stolen those things from me? In some way, try to defend this egregious act. However, that's not actually his response. That's not the response that we see. And his response, given everything that we know about him, is actually quite surprising. Look at verse 26. It says this, Then Judah identified them, and identified these items, and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Selah, and he did not know her again. This is significant, right? It might not jump out at you, but this is extraordinarily significant. Judah, having been, at this point, confronted by his sin, doesn't deny it. He doesn't try to justify it. Instead, he publicly acknowledges here his sin, the sin that he has committed. He admits his sin against Tamar. In uh, Genesis 38, at the, at the end of this long story of depravity, what we're seeing is Judah confess. He repents. His repentance is that he, he turns away from this, this uh, evil that he had um, allowed to occur and that he had done himself. And he acknowledges that there's this righteousness that he needed but did not possess. And as I mentioned before, this entire story, it's plopped seemingly right in the middle, out of nowhere, into this long story, this long narrative of Joseph. And it could be very easy to look at this story and see it as purely random. It could easily be viewed as, you know, things like don't marry pagan women, don't encourage murderous violence in your children, don't exploit and abuse women. Those are all good takeaways from this story. But if that's the only thing that we see happening in this story, we're actually doing a great disservice to the author's intent because this is not a random story plopped into the middle of a broad narrative about Joseph. What we are seeing here in this passage, and we're going to unpack this uh, in coming weeks, is we're seeing God doing something in the, in the life uh, of this family. He's working in the midst of this very broken family. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a trajectory, again, that we'll unpack further in coming weeks, but the rest of the story of Genesis centers around Joseph. Now, Joseph is the brother of, of Judah, uh, who, if you know the story, eventually comes to, you know, he was sold into slavery. Uh, he eventually, though, in Egypt, will come to power, uh, and we'll look at that ascent in coming weeks. But for now, just know that his main role, Joseph's main role in Egypt when he came to power, was to manage the resources of Egypt during a time of famine in the region. And now Joseph's brothers, who would have lived in that region, uh, including Judah, eventually would go to Egypt looking for those resources. And while there, though Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers when they come, the brothers do not recognize him. It's been many years. The last time they saw him, he was basically uh, crying in a pit. Now he's at the heights of power. They didn't recognize him. And so as a test... Uh, what you see, and I, not only was it a test, I think Joseph was actually kind of messing with them a bit, but Joseph makes it look as though the youngest brother, Benjamin, had stolen something from him. And so Joseph says, as punishment, Benjamin is not to leave Egypt. He is now permanently going to remain here. The other brothers can remain, or can go home. However, those brothers, 
they know that their father, Isaac, would be absolutely crushed with grief if, they were, if he was to lose another young son. And the reason why this all matters is because what you see here is we have a, another potential crisis in this family. And the potential crisis, as a result of the potential crisis, you see Judah, of all people, back on the scene. And here's what happens. Up until now, the only thing that we've known of, of Judah is that he's heartless, he's cold, and generally wicked. But something really changes in him. And we see that change later in our story. Let me read for you what happens next in, uh, in the narrative. You guys want to uh, throw that up if you can. Chapter 44, fast forwarding. Given everything I just said about this interaction between Joseph and his brother. So now, if the boy is not with us, that's Benjamin that they're talking about. If the boy, Benjamin, is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, uh, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servant will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servants guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Verse 33. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Here's what's happening. All right, amazing turn of events, given everything that we know about Judah. Judah, the despicable man, in this passage, is offering to lay down his life in exchange for the freedom of his younger brother, Benjamin. The one who once sold his brother into enslavement is now willing to enter enslavement to ensure his brother's freedom. The one who was, has always been cold, heartless, unloving, now, out of love for both his brother and his father, is willing to sacrifice himself. I mean, this is a stunningly new posture for Judah. What caused that kind of change in him? What has led him to be willing to lay down his life when all we've ever known is for him to be a man of self-gratification and coldness? Well, I think it's actually back at the story of Tamar that gives us huge insight into understanding the transformation. Right? You cannot tell me that the, this story, that the author randomly plops, Genesis 38, the story that we, we heard about Judah and Tamar, randomly plops it arbitrarily into this overarching narrative of Joseph. The story of Tamar is given to us for the purposes of showing us where redemption comes from, where the power of it comes from. Specifically, redemption comes, this is the point. I said a lot to get to this point. Redemption comes as one acknowledges his or her depravity, repents, and turns toward righteousness. It changes everything about who we are and the trajectory of our life. When we admit our depravity and brokenness, we repent and we turn toward righteousness. Judah was on the path, much like his brothers, of forfeiting his rights as the leader of the family and the bearer of the, the future family line. 
Right? He was becoming, if not was, just as evil as his brothers had been. However, the text that we heard read today screams a radical transformation in this despicable man through this confession and repentance. There's a redemption story that we see. We don't see it coming through proud arrogance that refuses to acknowledge one's depravity, but rather through this confession and repentance. But though that is the power of redemption, redemption is tied to a willingness to admit our brokenness and our need for righteousness. Though that's where the power comes from, just know that that kind of power is not something that we are able to muster in and of ourselves. In fact, that kind of power, it requires a grace that is rooted in something far greater than anything we can muster within ourselves, which is why not only do we need to recognize where the power of redemption comes from, we also need to see the grace that is in the midst of God's redemption. You know, this uh, remarkable story of redemption, uh, again, really makes one thing abundantly clear, I think, for most of us, that you cannot see the full scope of this story and not see how deeply tied redemption is to grace. There's so many things that have happened already along the way in our story that shows us just how gracious God is. And I say this because we need to consider that that's actually how God works. In particular, we must see how God in his grace uses this one once despicable man for eventual greatness. Understanding God's grace in Judah is actually incredibly instructive for us as well. And while there's certainly a lot of grace and redemption that's taking place between Judah and, and Tamar, right? We saw a bit of that. Uh, we'll see in coming uh, weeks uh, a lot of redemption and, and grace that's going to need to be had between Joseph and his brothers. This grace that we're seeing here is nothing compared to the grace that we see tied to the eventual story of Judah. There's a redemption that comes through the brokenness of his story that completely upends our notions of grace. Right, looking into the future line of Judah provides us the best picture of that grace, and I want to show you how God continues to work in the midst of this family. Track with me for a second. So in verse, uh, in 38, Genesis 38, 9, we are told that through the relationship of Judah and Tamar, that they had twins. And one of those twins, the name of that twin was Perez. Now, if you fast forward a bit more into Ruth 4, particularly verses uh, 18 through 20, uh, we see the subsequent line of Perez. Okay, so, so track with me. Judah has a son named Perez. I want to read for you now the line that would come after Perez, coming from Ruth 4. In verse 18, let me just read this for you. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron followed Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab followed Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. That's King David. Side note, when you're reading through the Bible and you hit certain uh, genealogies, it can very, be very easy to just skip over them as kind of boring and inconsequential. Every time there's a genealogy in the Bible, extraordinarily consequential. 
Because what we just saw there in that whole long list of names is this connection between Judah having this child through very broken circumstances, Perez, and Perez and his line eventually leading to King David. Judah would become the man through whom God would bring the kingly line of Israel. And as you know, from the kingly line, it would be from that line that the great king, the great redeemer of the entire cosmos would come, Jesus. It is through God's gracious, redemptive work in Judah that he's able to take this very sinful, broken situation that Judah created and through it bring an ultimate redeemer who would redeem the world. I mean, the grace of God on Judah is stunning. I mean, God had every right to remove Judah from this entire equation as he'd done with some of the other heirs, to strike him dead in his wickedness. However, understand that there was a turning point for Judah, and that turning point was his acknowledgement of his depravity, the subsequent repentance before God, and his acknowledgement of a righteousness that he needed but did not possess. That was what made the turn, so that now Judah remained as part of God's redemptive plan to one day bring Jesus our Savior. Through Judah's line, God would reveal a far greater reality of his grace, and that reality is Jesus. In Christ, God provides a level of grace that, if we are honest about it, absolutely takes your breath away, like Judah. In so many different ways, we too are depraved. We might not fall to the extent that Judah has, but if we're honest and we understand ourselves, we're all capable. We all have the capacity for that kind of wickedness. But like Judah, we are selfish. We are lustful. We are apathetic to the hurt of others around us. We can be scheming and ultimately willing to deny God's rule over our life. We do that every day. And at the roots, that was Judah's problem. God was not God in his life. He had made himself a God. However, redemption comes when Jesus like Judah, is willingly stepping into our brokenness and willingly out of love for his father and his brothers is willing to lay down his life. Judah in his redeemed state, right, after he's had this heart change, actually becomes a beautiful picture of what Jesus would actually do for us, willingly laying down his life to save those whom he loves. And subsequently, our redemption comes when we to admit our depravity. We confess our sins. We repent of our sins, and we turn toward a righteousness that we do not possess. And one of the other beautiful things that Christ does is you can turn toward righteousness, but you'll never be able to actually possess the kind of righteousness that we need, which is why Paul reminds us that one of the things that Christ accomplishes is that for our sake— Remember that passage, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. When we turn toward Jesus, Jesus becomes our righteousness. When we confess, repent, acknowledge the ways that we need him, the righteousness of Jesus is given to us, and that completely transforms us in the same kinds of ways that Judah was transformed. I mean, Christ on the cross takes the depravity of our sin— 
and offers us the beauty of his righteousness. The outworking of God's redemptive grace comes because of Jesus' righteousness so that now, when we trust in him, God sees us through Christ's perfection. It's one of the beautiful realities of what God accomplishes in Jesus. God now sees the liar as, as honest, the lustful as pure, the murderer as compassionate, the sinfully angry as peaceful. And because God does that work in us, it changes us so that now we're actually able to live toward God's perfect righteousness in Jesus. And of course, lest we assume, right? I, I said that redemption, this kind of redemption seems scandalous. But lest we assume that God lets sin go unpunished, that is the very point of Christ, being that atoning work, laying down his life on the cross for us. This is a great hope of the gospel. This is the power of redemption. The great hope of the gospel is that, like Judah before Joseph, there was another, out of love for his father, was willing to lay down his life in exchange for our salvation. That's our hope. And so my encouragement would be for all of us, as we look at the brokenness of our own lives, we look at the brokenness of uh, the world around us, of those around us, the ways that it impacts the, w the life that we live, the world around us, I'd encourage us to look to Christ as this redeeming Savior and also to see in this story the ways that God is able to work even through the worst of circumstances, ultimately for our, or his glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your kindness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that though at times it seems uh, scandalous, uh, this, the power of this grace, uh, that it is also beautiful for those that turn to you in repentance. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in us, that you would help us uh, to repent, that you would help us uh, to, like Judah, acknowledge the ways that we have failed, to turn toward righteousness, and for that righteousness to be the righteousness of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that through that, um, you would transform us, and that, God, we'd be able to have confidence to know that even in, in the worst, in, in the most broken of circumstances, you are at work. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.